0: Welcome to a University of Bath IPR Policy Podcast.
1: Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to those of you who I can see connecting to our event uh, by audio um, this afternoon. Um, my name is uh, Nick Pierce, and I am the director of the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath. Um, and my screen tells me that a number of you are still trying to get into the meeting so I shall slow down my introductions as you do so. Um, uh, This event, this online event, uh, is to host um, the launch of a report that my colleagues at the Institute uh, uh, have been undertaking in uh, recent weeks and months called Uncharted Territory Universal Credit Couples uh, and Money. Um, This is part of an ESRC funded project Couples Balancing Work, Money and Care exploring the shifting landscape under universal credit. That's a three-year longitudinal qualitative research study um, and it looks at how couples with and without children make decisions about work, care and household finances in relationship to the changes brought about by universal credit. Um, As people will know, universal credit is big reform. It uh, replaces six means-tested benefits and tax credits. Uh, some big and complicated changes and those are some of the issues that we've been exploring in this research focusing on design and payment issues affecting couples with or without uh, children as I say. Uh, Today what we're going to do is uh, hear from our uh, reports authors from the research team uh, and then there will be opportunity for uh, plenty of debate uh, and discussion. Uh, We can take questions, Uh, please do submit those via the chat function later on and, and then we will Uh, respond to those questions, put those to our report authors. The first of uh, my colleagues I'm going to introduce is Rita Griffiths who's a research fellow at the IPR at the University of Bath and uh, Rita will be presenting some slides on the research uh, shortly. Uh, We're also joined by Jane Miller who is a professor of social policy at the University of Bath. Um, and Fran Bennett, who is a Senior Research Fellow, part of the team at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention uh, at the University of Oxford. Uh, And then finally, uh, last certainly not least, Alison Garnham, who is the Chief Executive of the Child Poverty Action Group. I'm sure many of you know know very well Uh, and uh, Alison will be giving her um, thoughts on the project uh, when we've had the presentations from our speakers. Um, I need to just to say a few uh, words of housekeeping before we start. Um, cameras and microphones of participants are switched off, uh, if you have a question uh, please do submit it via the chat function and we will try and respond to them all. Um, the session is being uh, recorded and subject to no technical difficulties, we will uh, put the session up on, online as a podcast at a later date so you can come back to it. Um, if you haven't seen the report it's available on the IPR website at the University of Bath so please just do go to our website, you can access it in full there um, to download. But that's probably enough from me by way of introduction. Thank you all for joining us. And I'm now gonna pass to my colleague,
2: Jane Miller, hand
1: over to Jane to introduce uh, the research, Jane.
2: Thanks very much, Nick. And I'd like to add my welcome to everyone. It would be nice to be in the same room as you all, um, but unfortunately (laughs) we can't do that. So hopefully we can still continue to have a good debate and discussion. So, as Nick said, Universal Credit, a huge and radical policy change, merging six means tested benefits for people in and out of work into one system. This is a new um, provision that affects the incomes and thus the living standards and the well being of millions of people. Now, Universal Credit was announced 10 years ago, and the first claimants came onto the system in 2013. So, we know quite a bit about how the system is working. But our project is the first independent in-depth research to focus on couples claiming universal credit. Couples are currently about 15% of universal credit claimants, they're probably more in the upsurge that followed the Covid-19 um, lockdown. Um, so they're about 15% at the moment but by the time universal credit is fully operational about half of all claimants will be couples. So there'll be about three million couple households in the um, in the realm of universal credit. So our research, you might say, is a bit of a glimpse into the future, what's coming. um, And hopefully it will be helpful in highlighting some of the issues now so that problems and difficulties can be avoided. The project has two main research aims. The first aim was to examine how couples make decisions about money, work and care in this new universal credit environment. And the second was to explore what this means for gender roles within the household. We're going to be interviewing our sample again in September, looking at people's experiences over time. So that will be an opportunity also to look at the impact of the COVID-19 lockdown, as we'll have information both before and after that happened. But today we're focused on our first round of interviews, and I'd like to thank the ESRC who provided the funding for this um, project. Um, Our sample includes 90 individual people, 90 participants and 53 households receiving universal credit in four areas of England and Scotland. We actually have over 120 interviews because we interviewed most of the couples, both jointly and individually. So we've got the perspectives of both the men and the women in the couples and their joint perspective. We also have a few former couples, lone parents, who can look back on their experience of claiming as a couple and reflect on that. We found our sample through a variety of means, including Facebook, community groups, snowballing, posters and job centres, and so on. What we aimed for, and what we were able to get, was a broad cross-section of claimants, including couples with different patterns of employment. So we've got no earners, we've got one earners, and we've got two earners. We sought to get people who'd been claiming universal credit for at least six months so they weren't in that initial period where things need to settle down and so we can um, pick them up past that initial claim period. My colleagues at Bath, Rita Griffiths and Marsha Wood carried out all the interviews and the main analysis and Rita is now going to take us through some of the research highlights. I'm going to pass over to Rita at this point.
3: Okay, thanks Jane. So. Um... I want to start just by looking at why we're focusing on couples particularly, um, why, why it's different for couples, um, and then some highlights from the research. So it's, it's a really um, extensive study. Um, so we've only got time to focus on some of the, the key highlights, but we're focusing in on what we think are the important findings. Um, the focus is very much On uh, design and payment issues in this phase of research. So we're looking at the universal credit design and um, the way in which it impacts on um, money inside the household and budgeting in the couples. And as Jane explained, the phase two research um, is looking more at work, care decisions, um, and the conditionality regime um, in our follow-up interviews scheduled for September. So Um, Universal credit is really different um, for couples compared with single claimants and and lone parents because it's a really complex mix of individual and joint aspects. So so there's a joint claim, um, there's a joint means test. So the income earnings of both members of the couple accounted for the, the joint means test. There's joint liability for the debts. And yet the conditionality, the work conditionality is individual. So each member of a couple has um, a claimant commitment with their own work requirements. There's only a single work allowance in a couple, which is the same amount that uh, lone parents are entitled to. And um, most importantly, and what is unique about universal credit is that there is only one payment per couple. And the other important thing is that um, that this jointness, so this treatment of couples um, is not elective, You can't choose to be treated separately. Um, There is an obligation to be treated as a single benefit unit, as it's called, so that both members of the couple and any dependent children they have in the household is treated as a single unit. So necessarily, this means that um, the decisions, behaviors, actions um, of one partner Necessarily um, affects the other. And that's past and present as well, um, as we'll come on to see. So, this was the starting point for the research. We were looking at at how um, this context for making decisions about money and budgeting, work, and care was actually impacting on um, the couple dynamic and on gender roles in this context. So, financial issues were really to the fore in a lot of um, couples. They found that um, financially they were often um, worse off claiming jointly compared with claiming separately. I should say that, um, that many of these issues about um, financial impacts of claiming jointly were uh, also applied to the legacy system. So they're not exclusive to universal credit, uh, but nevertheless, they, they impacted hugely in some cases on, um, on couples' um, financial circumstances, particularly if they'd been claiming um, benefits as individuals um, before um, they started living together. Um, And the first issue is just that the couple allowance itself is less than double um, the amount that two single um, claimants uh, would actually be entitled to. Um, Secondly, that um, the joint means test, so including both partners in the means test, um, particularly earnings, could actually eliminate one partner's income. So if if one partner um, is earning and the other um, was previously claiming, for example, as a lone parent, claiming as a couple would eliminate the lone parent's um, individual income by starting a joint claim. Um, so partners also could inherit um, the, um, the debts and overpayments, um, tax credits and benefits from their partner as well. So um, this related both to um, overpayments in the benefit system, but also Um, debts to third parties, including local authorities. So for example, um, council tax payments and sometimes um, related to a much earlier period um, of claiming when uh, one um, member of the couple was actually in a a previous partnership. So anything that that might still be owed and sitting on the the system is brought into the current claim with the current um, partner and deducted automatically, um, repayments are deducted automatically um, from the universal credit claim. Um, also uh, mentioned previously, only one work allowance, which could disincentivize second earners in couples who are uh, mainly uh, women in most couples, although not all. Um, and what most people felt was that the joint treatment over which they had no choice was very much out of step um, with norms around uh, relationships and financial independence. For couples with children, the the partners are required to nominate a lead carer. This is the person who has main responsibility for uh, for looking after children. The choice in our couples was largely determined by the existing work and care roles of the members of the the male and female member of the couple. And so unsurprisingly, um, lead carers were overwhelmingly female. So 27 uh, lead carers were women and only three were, were men because it reflected current arrangements in which it was more likely for the male partner to be working full time. Um, and couples felt that that kind of re- could reinforce a notion of a, a male breadwinner. So it's harking back to a, a previous era that wasn't necessarily relevant. Um, and they also mentioned the fact that the partner's parenting role is ignored. in in this regime. So it particularly also affects the conditionality regime. So um, while the lead carer has some flexibility around the number of hours uh, they're required to work or to look for work, the other parent often um, is ignored and they're expected to work full time as though they have no children. And and, and our couples didn't like that. They were saying that uh, we're we're both our children's parents and we don't like being um, shoehorned into this division. So again, the policy wasn't seen to reflect um, contemporary norms around work and caring. And also the practicalities. We did have some couples who split um, work and parenting 50-50 down the middle. So it presented them with a real dilemma about who who to nominate. One of the key aspects of universal credit that differentiates um, it from um, the previous system is that it's a lump sum monthly payment. So it's bringing in payments for adults and housing children, if there are dependent children, and also childcare, if that's relevant, into a single monthly payment, which is um, paid with a monthly frequency. For couples used to being paid monthly or who had their tax credits paid for weekly previously, it had little or no impact, and often they said it ticks over quite nicely. So if the universal credit payment came in at a different time of the month to the wages, so they were paid wages, and then maybe two weeks later they would pay the universal credit. So that worked really well for some couples, but for couples um, who were more reliant on universal credit, so there were perhaps no other source of income, it was much more challenging for them to, to manage Uh, Some of this was to do with just income inadequacy, so there wasn't enough money coming in through universal credit. Some of it was to do with the fact that there was no longer any labelling of the benefits, so particularly payments for children, that it was hard to differentiate between payments for children and the overall household budget. So it was also much riskier if the payment unexpectedly reduced or stopped. So the idea of, of all eggs being in one basket meant that um, if there was a problem then it affected everything. There was often it was for couples with children it was only child benefit that they could rely on sometimes if there was a problem they need to challenge. And importantly as well the separate benefits and tax credits in the previous system allowed each partner in the couple to have um, an income um, so child tax credit was typically paid to the main carer, housing benefit paid to the person responsible for paying the rent, and um, adult benefits paid to, um, in the case of job seekers allowance, to the main job seeker. So, so each partner had an income. And the other issue was just having a monthly payment was more um, difficult to stretch the payment to last a month. And in all of this, often it's women who are more affected because they're much more likely to be money managers in low-income households. They were the ones at home, they were the ones struggling to make their payments stretch. Another key difference between universal credit and the legacy system, particularly tax credits, is that it's assessed monthly compared with an annual assessment, which is paid with a regular fixed amount for tax credits. So again, some couples actually preferred this. It only really applied for couples who had earnings because they're the ones whose assessment um, has to, um, is likely to fluctuate from month to month. But some preferred it because it reduced the risk of overpayment. So only being paid on a monthly basis meant that they couldn't run up large overpayments that they earn, subsequently had to repay. And that had been an issue in the past for some. But for others, a monthly assessment sometimes created really unpredictable and large fluctuations um in the payment that that were really hard to understand in some cases because of the the amount of fluctuation so it, in some cases it would go from perhaps 800 pounds down to 50 pounds back up again and um, often um, people wouldn't know in advance so there's only a seven day with a monthly assessment there's only a seven day notice for a payment which made it really difficult for, for couples um, and again it was mainly women to know um, how much they were going to get paid, and that made budgeting really hard. There was a particular issue for two earner couples um, around um, technical issues about the way in which wages are captured in the monthly assessment. Now this has been highlighted for lone parents, but for two earner couples, the effects were multiplied. So sometimes if, um, if wages were paid early, For example, due to a bank holiday um, or or a weekend, sometimes three or four sets of earnings could be included in the monthly assessment. And when this happened, couples um, not only lost um, their payment of universal credit last month, but they could actually lose their entitlement altogether because it looked as though they'd been earning a huge amount, which took them outside of universal credit eligibility. Um, and it was particularly relevant for couples who had childcare costs because childcare costs are included in the payment. And sometimes they actually lost um, their entitlement to childcare, but still had the liability to pay them. And again, it was women who were disproportionately affected. Uh, they were more likely to be in receipt of the universal credit payment, they were more likely to be paying for childcare and juggling the finances and managing the claim overall. So it could be really quite stressful for them. So the key aspect of um, the payment regime in universal credit is that there's only one payment um, per couple. So, so the couple has to decide between them uh, which partner or bank account is going to receive the payment. And in our research, um, just under two-thirds of pays were female, which broadly reflects the, the national statistics. 27% male, and we did have um, some uh, a small number of payments that made into a joint account. And we had one couple that actually split the payment. There were actually very few joint accounts in our sample, particularly uh, joint accounts were no other um, single account existed. So a few couples did have savings accounts, but in the main, it was uh, the individual partners each had their own bank account. And, and actually joint accounts were seen as really risky by women um, because they were worried that, what would happen if a partner um, accessed um, the joint money? What would happen if the relationship ended? So they really wanted to have their own bank accounts and their own financial autonomy, their own financial footprint, which is important for um, not just for claiming benefits in the future potentially, but also for applying for, for loans and credit and so on. So they were really keen about that. So even though they were sharing expenses and there were lots of joint aspects of, um, of money management, the actual way in which they kept control was by keeping their finances separate. Um, having said that, often the choice of bank account was really just a practical decision. So who went online first to make the claim, which account from, uh, are the rent and bills paid from, and who's better at managing finances. And in some couples who trusted one another, they were quite happy to make transfers between one another's accounts. Um, the e-banking apps allowed them to do that although that didn't happen um, for all couples. Others um, specifically chose a partner who was not earning in order to give both an income. But we can't assume that just because there's one payment um, per couple that it goes to women, that it's actually unproblematic, because it can still leave the other partner with no income. And men too had um, a sense of of, uh, not wanting to be financially dependent on their partner. So it It was seen to undermine the financial independence of the the non-recipient partner and could also undermine their their money management skills as well. If, if again, one person in the couple was taking all the responsibility for managing the single payment, there's still a risk of financial abuse as well with, um, with a single payment. And as I've mentioned a number of times, it's actually a heavy burden for him to carry often they were um, managing the single payment on top of um, often having a part-time job, managing their children, um, and also the childcare arrangements. So it was yet another task for women to do. They were doing all the kind of heavy lifting around the additional compliance that was attached to a universal credit claim. So for a whole variety of reasons, even though it may not have affected them um, personally or them as a couple, most couples felt that paying a separate amount to each partner, if that could be achieved, was much safer and fairer to everybody. Um, and a lot of these issues about how couples manage their relationships, how they manage their finances, are all relevant, are going to be more relevant to the um, COVID-19 cohort. Um, a lot of these issues are gonna be brought into much sharper focus. At that point, I'm going to pass over to my colleague. Grant, you'll continue.
4: Okay, I was going to look at the um, policy implications of our research. So we do realise that at the moment it's a crisis with the coronavirus pandemic and that the government is rather busy on other things. But we also think that the issues that are affecting couples will be thrown into sharp relief by the coronavirus pandemic uh, because so many more couples are coming onto Universal Credit And for some, that will be quite a shock because of the various elements of its uh, features that Rita has been talking about. So although our report reinforces the findings of others about some of the issues with universal credit, we also think that it makes the case for more consideration to be given to couples in particular and their position in relation to universal credit. And in particular that 's because um, some of its rules and the way in which it's designed run counter we think to current norms amongst uh, the way amongst many families and the way in which they live today um, but also it's because couples are affected more by some of the design features of universal credit than other people are and now is the time to address those uh, because of the greater numbers coming onto Universal Credit as a result of uh, the pandemic. So, the first one of those we'd highlight is uh, what Rita was talking about in terms of the um, uh, element for couples being lower than the equivalent for two single people. Now, that is not new. That's the case for means tested benefits in general, and it's meant to recognize economies of scale. But the coronavirus crisis has led to an uplift of some 20 pounds a week in universal credit standard allowances and that has meant that the 20 pounds a week goes to single people and the extra 20 pounds a week goes to couples as well and that moves the relativities between single and couples singles and couples and to make it uh, worse relatively speaking for couples so we think the time is right for a review Of the relativities between singles and couples in particular because of the uplift due to the coronavirus pandemic. The other issue which came across very strongly I think in what Rita said was about access to some income for both members of the couple being seen as safer and fairer and of course before the means-tested benefits all these six benefits and tax credits were put together um, there was the opportunity for, in in quite a lot of couples, for one person to get some of the income and the other to get some of it as well, and that's more difficult now because of universal credit. And we think that there should be um, arrangements so that couples can have some of the universal credit each, rather than it having to go to one specific account. Uh, Scotland, of course, is um, is thinking about how to do this at the moment. We also think that that doesn't necessarily mean financial independence as such uh, for either partner, because as Rita said, um, the way in which universal credit and other means tested benefits work is that the income and the needs and the actions of your partner, um, of course, affects the amount of resources that you get as well. So it's important to recognise that universal credit is not the only benefit in the social security system and that it's really important to protect uh, other benefits and to increase them, particularly those that give some financial independence uh, for women who find it more difficult to do that. The other way in which, of course, people can have financial independence is through wages. And uh, one of the issues that we will look at more in the second phase of our research, um, but that did come through to some extent in this, is that um, second earners, so-called, um, do not have as good incentives as first earners in couples uh, to earn some money of their own and we'll be having a look at some of the issues there and we'd like the government to uh, review those as well and see how incentives can be improved for so-called second earners in couples we did have our, however have some two earner couples in our research and uh, they were particularly affected by two issues which have come through from other people as well Um, and in fact were the subject of um, a court case today uh, which found against uh, the government in terms of how universal credit and earnings uh, payments interact. So if you have two earners in a couple then the volatility of your income uh, can be greater if you're on universal credit because um, you may have uh, several different payments of of earnings uh, within the month Um, And those may come at different times one month from the next month. And therefore, they will um, affect your universal credit and make it more volatile, more unpredictable um, than it would if it was just one earner uh, with payment period that was just uh, one lot of wages. So two earner couples uh, find that even more difficult. And the other thing that two earner couples, and it should be said, lone parents as well, uh, suffer from is having to pay childcare costs up front. Um, And uh, for earners, um, that made quite a difference to um, their uh, income and uh, people found it quite hard to um, cope with that. And some were actually tempted to or uh, had to give up um, work uh, or paid childcare because of that. So that's another thing we think the government should be looking at. Uh, We did find, as uh, you'll have uh, heard from Rita, that women were affected more across many features of universal credit uh, than men were. And we think this does mean that more attention should be given to the features in universal credit, which uh, may exacerbate the risk of abusive or controlling relationships having an impact. Um, But also that we should be looking at the situation of partnered women more generally. I've already talked about access to income of both partners um, and the fact that universal credit is not the only benefit we should be looking at uh, but also we'd like to see a review of the administrative and compliance burden on payments um, because that was much more likely as Rita said to fall on women and it really was no let up as the uh, report says uh, for some women that they were both administering the universal credit claim on behalf of the uh, couple and they were also trying to manage the household budget and they might also have had part-time work and childcare as well And we think the time is ripe to look at um, how much administrative and compliance costs there is on claimants of universal credit uh, Which particularly fell on the women. So those are some of the policy ideas that we think come out of the report uh, Which deserve uh, a good look by the government. I now want to hand on to uh, Alison Garnham who's the chief executive of the child poverty action group and who's kindly agreed to give us some comments on the research today
0: my role i think is to comment on this study and kind of draw more kind of uh, conclusions about it and and the sorts of things i want to look at are the issue of increased generosity which we've recently experienced the fact that policy is personal um, and the fact that there are still serious flaws that need to be tackled in universal credit Um, my comments are sort of informed by our early warning system at CPAG, where we collect cases from the front line about what's going wrong, and we do mind the gaps briefings fortnightly. Um, So my first general comment is really that, of course, everybody's pleased that universal credit hasn't fallen over. It's a really good sign, Um, especially following the very slow rollout uh, and the risk facing those who would have been worse off on universal credit because it was rolling out cuts. Um, but there's been a huge rise in claims of payment, nine times the pre-crisis rate of claims, and there's many claims in four weeks as in the nine months of the previous recession, 40% rise in universal credit awards, um, but the fact it hasn't fallen over, it seems to me, is a pretty low bar. <laughs> when the unemployment rose by three and a half million in the early 1980s, unemployment benefit didn't fall over either, uh, and you were paid in 14 days. Um, but implementation is often the most neglected part of policy development, so it's very important it works. And I think one obvious lesson to draw is that um, you need extra staff, and that's one of the things that seems to have worked. Um, as Franz pointed out, the increased generosity, the additional 20 pounds and help, more help with local housing uh, allowances being usually welcome, but of course it works out less for couples. But of course generosity could go a long way to smoothing over some of the cracks. But I don't think that's an excuse for not dealing with the other aspects of universal credit, which are deeply flawed. And I think this report reveals the practical day-to-day issues that arise for families. Um, The other kind of good news is that lots of people are managing okay. Um, Not surprisingly, they tend to be people with more steady incomes and more computer savvy. For those it's not working for it can be uh, a nightmare. And actually, even the Resolution Foundation study, which was broadly positive about universal credit, so that those managing to claim okay were still experiencing real hardship, 34% uh, were reporting trouble keeping up with bill payments, 42% had to cut back on spending and of course the five-week wait is unmanageable for most people and the recoverable loan is of course debt. (laughs) On top of the other regular deductions made from universal credit, it can leave people very short. So um, my conclusion policy is personal. I think this study reveals that very well. And there's a whole series of things, as France says, that are either transferred from pre-existing means-tested benefits and some are new to universal credit uh, that are problematic. Uh, The idea of one payment into a household, for example, when 75% of mothers are in paid work these days. um, It's a bit like sort of 1950s male wage earner model. In normal households, there's money coming in from different sources. The lack of split payments can make people vulnerable. It's not normal to be asking your partner for income. Monthly assessment and payment, uh, with people paid four-weekly still being capped, drives a coach and horses through the way people normally budget. The lack of a second earner work allowance, which given the huge growth in women's employment before the crisis and more women now losing jobs, uh, it's a bad idea to create such poor work incentives for second earners in universal credit. Why do we need a main earner and a second earner in the first place? Really we need two three-quarter time earners, it doesn't reflect the real world. And monthly reporting and payment of childcare costs in arrears is a huge problem for many families. Um, two things that haven't come up uh, so far is benefit cap and two child policy. The rationale for both of these policies is now redundant. The benefit cap is excluding people from the £20. Again, we're getting a lot of these cases reported to us at CPAG. We know that most capped households are lone parents, three quarters have children, a third of them have children so young they're not required to work. So the idea that this uh, is still needed as an incentive to move into paid work um, under lockdown uh, is extremely odd and needs to go. And the two child policy, of course, it would have been impossible to plan family signs, as is the of policy rationale making the same decisions as people uh, in work uh, when no one could have known that COVID-19 was around the corner it also of course as the benefit cap does discriminates against black minority ethnic families and of course one of the things that's coming up a lot now in our reports is contributory benefit entitlement being sidelined which has also been referred to Um, First there's been the reduction to one year's entitlement and now people are being encouraged away by the prospect of higher universal credit uh, entitlement. And it's something that we're working with DWP on. So a lot of this I've been calling discrimination by design and I think the reality is showing that is the case. Uh, Digital applications is an issue. Claimants not being able to understand how their award is broken down. It's hard to see what decisions have been made. And therefore work out whether there's a right of appeal statements and rights are hard to find Uh, so digital decision making needs a thorough review or or we call it computer says no Um, it it certainly needs to be made more transparent but the recent practice of follow-on calls um, recently uh, is a real improvement and i think that needs to be retained i think as others have said so I think the key point from the study is that this is worst for the most vulnerable families, the reality of deductions on top of an award that's hard to understand, monthliness, managing claims, non-splitting of elements, the main earner idea, make living with universal credit difficult uh, in practice and more difficult if you have fragile income. Um, In research we carried out in Tower Hamlets, many families said that they preferred the tax credits regime because it gave them greater predictability of income um, and they didn't understand monthly reassessment as a work incentive as, as intended by the universal credit policy. Um, what they really felt was that they were face to face with the poverty track each month and they were able to articulate that. Why earn more when it's just going to be taken away? Um, so, but that's the reality of this kind of means testing. A lot of the problems shown in this study um, stem from aggregation rules transported from pre-existing means-tested approaches. So I think one of the things we need to look at is how you get um, a sort of reinvigoration, perhaps, of our contributory system. Um, it was never really debated with the public whether they wanted to move to a huge single means test in the way that we have, uh, and when we talk to um, uh, the public, as we've done recently in assistance Citizens Jury, they seem to prefer contributory approaches. So, final learning points from me is I think we need to think more about how to create greater independence of income, whether through separating out amounts in universal credit and paying to each partner, or reinvesting in contributory benefits, which the public like and can provide an independent source of income, Uh, generosity is a huge point historically our replacement rates our benefits are very low on average for unemployed people half of in-work income so we need to work hard to try and keep the additional generosity in the system with the 20 pound payments and we need to restore more non-means tested sources of support and i think starting with child benefit Uh, we can't ever see i don't think child benefit folded into universal credit And I think it's absolutely crucial. Families need more certainty and reliability of income, fewer changes, longer payment periods, and individual assessments. And finally, I think we can't forget the crucial role of second earners in the reduction of child poverty. We need second earner disregards and employment support for parents, lone parents, and second earners. And I'll leave it there.
1: Great, well thank you very much indeed uh, Alison um, for those really important comments on uh, the report and on some of the other contemporary questions as you say the two-child policy, the benefit cap, a number of other issues, five-week wait and so on. Um, thank you to uh, Rita, to Jane and to Fran. Uh, we have some questions um, that have come in uh, uh, to you about the report. I'm going to start with one from Alan Marsh um, who asks what the purpose of nominating a lead child is. Is it simply to identify which partners will be hit by sanctions for non-compliance with job seeking or um, failure to try to improve earned income. So um, there, a question, there: you know, what what is the purpose of the lead child carer policy nominating a lead child carer? Uh, and then a second question, perhaps um, take two to start. This is from Mark who's done uh, work on UC in Northern Ireland with Ruth Patrick. And the question here really is about monthly payments and whether, People struggled with receiving housing costs uh, directly into their accounts. Would they have preferred direct payments to landlords? You know, a policy question that's been uh, there for UC for uh, for a, a long time now. And um, obviously in Northern Ireland and Scotland, you know, that provision does exist. So the question there about um, whether people would prefer direct payments of their housing costs to um, uh, their landlords. And uh, Mark ends with the. Question: you know, how, how hard did we have to look in this research to find any positive experiences? <laughs> <laughs> there was some mention, but how hard did we have to look? So uh, perhaps um, Rita, uh, I could start with you. Perhaps you could ask uh, uh, answer um, from those questions.
3: Yeah, so the question about the lead care policy um, is is basically to do with the conditionality regime. Um, principally, it's about. Um, allowing uh, carers with children to have more flexibility around um the needs that they're required to work or to um, or to job search. And it's basically um, it's it's a duplication, if you like, of the policy that previously applied to lone parents. Um, prior to uh universal credit um the dependent partner as they were known in in couples with children had no um work-related requirements or they were very minimal in comparison to universal credit so it's very much linked to the conditionality regime um around um, around couples with children
1: Thanks, thanks fran jane did we um touch on this question of housing costs and direct payments
4: um well i think the asking about the actual findings in the report uh in terms of monthly payments of housing costs and how many were having them direct to landlords would probably be better going to rita um uh, just because she lives this all the time um could i just come back on the lead carer one briefly which is is to say that of course um the purpose of universal credit from the start um was that um it was very much couched in the framework of uh workless households and in particular uh workless families with children and therefore the emphasis was always on uh one uh, main earner in the household um uh, rather than necessarily two so the priority was to get one person um into work and therefore if you like that goes with the idea that one person would have responsibility for the children and the other would have no recognition uh, within their conditionality that they have children at all, as Rita said. So the person who's the lead carer is treated as though they were a lone parent, actually, as though they were looking after children on their own. Um, And the other person is the person to whom the priority is given for uh, getting the family out of worklessness. And that was very much, um, as I remember, uh, the uh, motivation behind universal credit. Um, but I think the um, the housing costs and how many people had housing costs direct to the landlord is is probably better for for Rita.
0: Um,
3: yeah, I, I can I can reply to that. I think was it was it Mark who asked the question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yes. yeah, it, it it very much depended. Um, so one of the um, the key differences was whether um, the. Tech- with a social housing provider or whether it's with a private landlord because that was then reflected in how much entitlement people got towards their housing costs so in cases where um, their tenancy was with a social landlord then um, paying the rent direct was often uh, it took the worry away because it was often paid in, in full um, however um, there were some technicalities around the free and nature of the payment, which meant that, that some people were technically always in arrears. They were always kind of trying to catch up because of the way in which uh, monthly assessment worked. Um, and that, again, was an added stress. So people constantly getting letters, um, automated letters, saying that they were in arrears when, uh, when it was just to do with the way in which the monthly assessment worked. So it didn't necessarily take the stress away. Um, and for other people who had um, private um, landlords, I think the issue there was um, people wanting the control because they they couldn't rely on the system um, paying on their behalf. So often they were kind of cut out of the loop, um, the actual claimants themselves. So they didn't know how much was being paid, whether it's be- being paid in its entirety. And so often people did prefer Well, as soon as their universal credit payment came in, the first thing that often uh, couples did was to pay their rent in full and then just try to manage on whatever was left. So they knew they always had a roof over their heads and that was a priority for for nearly all the couples that we interviewed.
2: And Nick, just on the, did we have to search hard for good news in the sample, which is Mark's question, (laughs) which is a good one. Um, one of the things about our sample was we tried to get a sample of people with a range of experiences. So we weren't trying to pick up people who presented with problems to fight agencies or anything like that. It was a diverse sample. And as we say, we had people in lots of different expo- employment experiences. I think many of the couples that we talked to, I mean, universal credit is a source of income and it's important from that point of view. I mean, it's topping up wages or people are living on it as their entire income. So in terms of... Um, Uh, the positives of it, having a source of income was an important thing. Um, I think that um, uh, the other thing, and I think it's already been mentioned, was that for people whose circumstances were relatively stable and who were in the right sort of site, universal credits basically Mm -hmm. be designed for a particular type of person, and if you're that type of person, it can work for you. So if your Mm -hmm. pure situation, your monthly wages don't change, you're good at IT and you prefer to use IT because some people do they like the online claiming and so on then it is going to work for you but that's who it's been designed for the problem is there are a lot of people who don't fit those circumstances and the design they have to try and fit themselves around it rather than the other way around
3: if I I could just jump in there and just add that that the couples that really got a good experience sort of following on from what Jane said were in the main, tended to be single earner couples were um, quite traditional, where um, there was a male full time earner and um, uh, the the female partner was at home caring for children. And because she was in receipt uh, usually of the universal payment, it was basically replacing the previous child tax credits, um, and that. Tended to work well, it was stable, um, as Jane said, they could rely on it. It didn't, it wasn't a volatile payment in the same way. Um, but, um, for, but for dual learner couples, and that was very much a surprise for us because we expected people sort of upper end of eligibility, um, would have quite a good experience, but because they were more likely to be subject to this huge variation. Um, it, and also because of the way in the, that incentives now are now geared towards single earner couples. So some of them lost out financially as well um, when there were two earners. Um, but there were there were some couples that, that had a good experience. So it's, it, and you know, there's, there are plenty of examples in the report. It's not all just bad news.
1: Right. thank you, Rita. So we have um, uh, a few more questions now. Um, the first is uh, on research methodology, uh, which is from... Um, Uh, from uh, Sarah Hughes which is um, thinking ahead to the next phase of the research um, how will you analyze the care employment decision-making process Um, so the decisions between care and employment Um, will you draw on any particular frameworks for that or perhaps use vignettes to explore the decision-making process so research methodology question there Uh, then a question from Joe, Joe Abbas in um, uh, Joe I think you're probably in in Norway if you can hear me in Bergen how do and I think this is the government. How does the government interpret the design flaws identified in the study, um, or how? Sorry, how do how do we in, uh, researchers identify the design flaws? Are they are they deliberate, such as the disincentives for second earners? Are they deliberate, or are they the result of lack of understanding or uh, accidental? Um, I suppose if you were Ian Duncan Smith, you'd say I had a perfect design and then the Treasury just chopped all the resources and so (laughs) We've ended up where we are Um, uh, And then I and then related to that I think coming back to the points perhaps Alison was making perhaps Alison I could bring you in with Jane as well on these questions Uh, This balance you were talking about contributory benefits and public support Mm. for the idea of contribution obviously in our our system, we have uh, Some residual contributory elements in our uh, in our social security. We have means testing, and we've just been discussing universal credit uh, and means testing. And we have some elements of universality, obviously, uh, you know, child, child benefit, and some would argue that the basic state pension is becoming a uh, almost like a, a, a universal uh, income payment. Um, and I just wonder whether the experience of COVID might lead to a shift between those different elements. Uh, and in particular, whether the fact that people can't attend in person for, Interviews and so on that, that, you know, some of the kind of sanctions regime may disappear and some elements of more universality may be accepted as well as perhaps some of the uh, holes in the social security uh, system that have been exposed by the crisis might lead people to think that they want to go to a system that's either got more contribution in it or more universality but doesn't have the same elements of Um, uh, uh, conditionality or um, you know people's employment status passporting them through to benefits that they then aren't able to to obtain. So perhaps if I could Rita could ask you to do the first question on the methodology for the next phase. The research
3: methods yeah yeah. Um, so our first phase was very much geared towards um, getting um, different perspectives so from each of the partners we had an individual interview and then we were doing a interview where uh, the couple came together Uh, and we're interviewed um, by by a researcher. So that's a really good way of getting to um, work her decisions because each partner um, is answering questions uh, without the knowledge and the involvement of the other partner, but then we're also doing a joint interview. And we've we've got all that data um, available to us. So uh, we have analyzed it, it's just not been written up because we wanted to combine that then with our second phase of research. So what's happened with um, COVID-19 is that um, we are no longer able to use that methodology. Um, I should have said as well that all our interviews were were done in people's homes, so we would go into people's homes and get a really good feel for the dynamic of people's relationships and just the the circumstances that that, that families find themselves in. We're not going to be able to do that um, at all in phase two. We're going to have to switch to uh, virtual methods and telephone methods. Um, We're... Sadly, we will have to abandon, we think, a joint interview because it's just not going to work um, using uh, Zoom or a telephone interview. But we've got really good uh, data from our first phase, um, which we'll, we'll be um, combining. So, so the other issue is that it will be longitudinal. So we will be able to track those couples um, over time, looking at work-care decisions they were making in the first phase before COVID, and also after COVID as well, because obviously um, they've impacted um, the, the issues around COVID have impacted massively on uh, on families with the children and on on women as well. In particular, I don't know if colleagues would like to add to that at all.
1: Yeah, um, Fran, Jane, I mean, be, do, uh,
4: do please to do to also. Do you want you to go on to the? Um, do you want us to go on to the other question about? Yes, I think, um, policy and design, or hmm.
1: yes, please, yeah, please do, Fran. Yeah, yeah that, that would make okay. sense, I think. Yeah. Um,
4: I don't know whether others would want to add uh, about that one, but um, just to say, I do think that the policy aims um, for um, universal credit are important in the design, so that I think um, a lot of it is is not accidental. um, But that if you, for example, prioritise the um, transition into work, um, so you prioritise Um, people going from out of work to in work, which was seen to be a particular uh, problem area because of people having to um, stop claiming one benefit and then claim another. Um, If you prioritize that and therefore you think you have to put benefits um, for those out of work and those in work together to make that transition smoother, then that gives you For example, um, some policy rigidities, which mean that you are then having to treat people in and out of work in the same way in some ways, and therefore you can't tweak benefits for people out of work versus or benefits for people in work in certain ways that would be particularly beneficial for those groups. Similarly, if you decide that you need to simplify the benefit system and therefore you want to put together not just benefits for those in and out of work, but also benefits for income maintenance, if you like, so to give you an income, uh, and benefits which meet specific costs like childcare or housing costs. Similarly, you then introduce some policy rigidities because if you put everything together, then there's a limited range of things that you can do which are specific to those kinds of areas and would be particularly helpful uh, for those kinds of areas. So, for example, we used to have different taper rates for uh, withdrawing different benefits. And we used to withdraw them in a certain order when you increased your wage income. We used to leave child tax credits to last to withdraw. So you left the main carer with some uh, benefit. You, You can't do that if you're paying everything at once and it's one system. And in order to achieve some other policy aims, which included... Um, and and included this quite deliberately um, saving on administration you try to make the system as automated as possible and therefore um, some uh, ways in which the claimants felt that things were not personalized um, as Alison was talking about things which uh, they didn't understand but were sort of decided somewhere else by an automated system um, flow from that decision that you want to save money on administering the system so i think a lot of that was um is is an inevitable consequence of the um of the policy priorities that you set for uh, the new system
2: that as well which is i think i think that's all true um also i think what was missing though in the original design was the importance of security i don't think they were taking sufficient account of understanding that changing people's income all the time in the way that Universal Credit does, and Alison described it as face-to-face with the policy poverty trap every month. I don't think it's recognised that that was such a big issue. I mean, it seems... It wasn't recognised that people making people wait five weeks for any money was going to be problematic for a lot of people, and it also wasn't realised that you need some security in income. People need predictability; they need to know how much they're getting. It's a, it's important. The amount you get is important, but also knowing how much you're going to get and that you're going to get it regularly is very important. And that was missing. Um, can I say a bit, Alison? I'm sure I want to say more, but just a bit about the wider policy things. I mean the big increase in the numbers coming on to universal credit recently could mean that universal credit becomes more embedded in the system and actually becomes it's it's a sort of acceleration of the migration that wasn't happening and was very much slowed down so there's a risk of course that it becomes more embedded there but i think it's also true that we're already beginning to see some of the problems that these new cohorts are facing and um, one being that um the main reason why people are being turned down for, they're not eligible for any universal credit is because of their partner earnings, i.e. they're facing up straight away to the fact that there's a household means test here. So someone who loses their job and thinks that they can get some support from the state because they've lost their job through no reason of their own may find that they're not entitled because they're in a means system where their family income is taken into account. Um, the conditionality side, I think the the removal of some of the conditionality requirements at the moment is um, it's very important and there's a very good case for saying that you can't in periods of high unemployment have a rigid um, conditionality regime where you employ heavy sanctions for people who are looking for jobs in circumstances where they're going to find it very difficult to find work. And I'm sure Alison will want to add more on policy.
0: Yes, if I can. Um, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that from the, the work that you've done, you you might conclude that it's working better as a wage subsidy for sort of slightly better off steady earning people than it is for its original intention, which was helping people with the transition from out-of-work to in-work, where people, especially if they've been on universal credit longer, more fragile, uh, can't manage the change, and they're finding it very difficult to manage universal credit altogether. So that's quite interesting. The other thing is about in terms of what's deliberate, I remember early discussions in the design phase of universal credit when uh, ministers were being asked about second earner disregards and and, main wage earner ideas. And they were quite clear that they were deeply relaxed about the idea of universal credit being a benefit that gets one worker into work. Um, which, and, and at the time, you know, I think IFS had recently put out a document saying that the biggest rise in paid employment, and you know, in, in sort of rise in living standards in families had come from women joining the labour market, so it was a pretty batty sort of place to be politically on universal credit. Um, I think more recently, the idea about sort of big shifts in policy on social security, I think... Um, the fact that Rishi Sunak has introduced sort of a, 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 like a European style sort of continental 80% uh, replacement of earnings um, in the um, uh, job retention scheme is very interesting. And there's been no flack or fallout about that or complaints that it's too generous. Um, I think that does create a real opportunity to, to look again at generosity of the benefit system and um, whether we shouldn't be thinking about, as they do on the continent, six or 12 months at a much higher rate of of benefit rather than plunging people into the depths of poverty. Instantly they lose their their job like we do at the moment, although 20 pounds better than before. Um, uh, And I think that the other thing that I hope will change is that we now all have seen the faces of the low paid workers who are holding our country together. and, you know, seven out of 10 poor children live with working parents. So poverty today is about being in work. Um, so we now know who those people are. They're, they seem to be terribly useful. Um, and, uh, you know, a changed understanding about what um, low income is about in, in this country would be enormously helpful. And an understanding that there's not a group of people who are sort of takers and another group of contributors. But everyone is contributors, but some people are still very much worse off than others.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Alison. Um, and the, uh, the point you make about the j- job retention scheme is something that, uh, would have been unimaginable, I think in British policymaking until yes. this crisis, that you'd have a, a very continental style, of uh, intervention of that kind to keep people to, for the state to pay the wages, 80% of the wages of nearly 9 million people, I think. So it's huge. Exactly. Um, I've got two uh, more questions, uh, if I may. So, uh, from Kate Summers asking, um, about DWP policies that were designed to protect claimants that can't receive standard UC payments, i.e. an option to have the split payments between couples or to have some kind of money management intervention. Did these come up in the sample and how did participants access these alternative arrangements? How did they find them? So that's the first question. And then the second one from Carl Hanscom. Carl says, you have mentioned families struggling with not knowing what UC award to expect each month because of earnings frequency and debt repayments and more but the monthly payment of UC was justified at the start to encourage people to manage their money. With your research, was there acknowledgement of this being the expectation of universal credit, i.e. put some money aside if you received a bit more, or do claimants still expect the welfare state to fit around their lives? And now we've done this national experiment, how likely is it that claimants will get good enough at managing their money to deal with the fluctuations of UC? Or are more frequent payments and assessments essential? So um, the monthly payment, and whether it's people were aware of what it was being designed to achieve and whether we now need some a different kind of system but perhaps um perhaps uh, Rita we could start you with those questions um yeah about from, the, the, the split yeah. payment
3: yeah um yeah so payments um are by exception so it's only in um very exceptional circumstances that that they are granted it. so you don't have a right to request one um, um out of out of choice the um, and and only i think nationally um at the last count it was 86 at the last time data was produced 86 of course nash had a split payment Um, so really tiny numbers i mean um and even were um um, abuse taking um place we had um some examples in our research a split payment have been requested and turned down. So there are issues there. But also, um, if a woman is in an abusive relationship and is still living um, with her abuser, it can be an added risk to actually request a single payment. So it, it's a very risky um, policy. It, it's certainly not, not a, a solution. And I think, as, as Fran will confirm, it, it's a hugely complex issue, actually, how you split or separate payments um the women's budget group has done a lot of work and there's the Scottish government as well and they're still grappling with the issue so it's really not that straightforward
1: thank you Rita um and uh Fran and Jane I mean the the, perhaps this question of um you you know from Carl um you know did, did people internalize what they thought the policy was trying to make them do to manage their money over a month and um, did they acknowledge that and, uh, uh, and you know if it really doesn't work um, uh, uh, you know what's the sort of alternative is it is it to go to, to annual payments again or to go to annual assessments I should say or some other kind of frequency of payments
4: do you want to go first Jane or
2: um, yeah, I, I, yeah I find that people need to be taught how to manage their money rather <laughs> a bit off in a way. I mean, you know, people were managing the money. We're talking to people who, a lot of them are earning couples, who are quite used to managing their finances and people who are used to managing living on sometimes very low incomes and making it work. What people struggle with is a change in that payment regime for some people, so it didn't fit with the ways in which they had devised to manage their money, so they had systems, but those systems weren't necessarily lined up well with universal credit. And of course, the other side of it is, particularly for the people who were relying on universal credit as their only source of income and families with children, is there enough money? You can do as much managing of your money as you like, if you haven't got enough money you're still going to um, fall into problems and fall into debts and so on. So people were making choices, yes, about how they would spend their money and what they would prioritize, Um, but they were in some cases forced to do in the circumstances where it was just, they were just not going to have enough money to make it work. So I sometimes find the idea that people need to be taught to manage their money somewhat on the patronising side actually and and particularly for people um, uh, in a range of these circumstances.
4: And you can see that um, the um, legacy system uh, for different people I mean obviously there it depends what benefits you're claiming and so on but you get signals so you might call them nudges these days Mm -hmm. Uh, you get signals uh, that uh, this benefit is for this purpose so uh, here's some housing benefits. This benefit is child tax credit and child benefit, this is for your children. And we had claimants who said, I don't know now which is meant to be for me and which is meant to be for the children. You also had in the legacy system some choice and control, uh, if you were on tax credits, of how often you wanted to be paid. So you could be paid weekly or you could be paid four weekly. And child benefit has also got some arrangements whereby you can be paid weekly in certain circumstances. Um, So you have more kind of choice and flexibility over what suits you, if you like, and things are labelled and they're kind of ring fenced in that in that sort of way. And they're paid to different people within the household and they're paid more frequently. Then you take all that away and you say, we're going to give you one undifferentiated lump sum payment once a month. And you say, if you need some help, budgeting will give you some budgeting help it seems to me that you take away all the all the nudges and all the helps that were given and then you say budgeting advice instead doesn't seem to me a hugely um good deal um and one of the things that i think we could have said earlier and should say is that some of the um you were asking about policy and whether it was deliberate and so on that that some of the things which don't work here might have worked better had claimants been talked to more and had claimants had more input into the design of universal credit. There are some things like the poverty trap, for example, which in a modeling sense may seem as though they work very well. Um, but actually, if you are a family living uh, with universal credit that, um, where 63% of the universal credit is taken away at the end of every month, rather than you having um, a platform to build on, as you did with tax credits, for example, it doesn't feel the same as it is when it's modelled at all. It feels very different from the old situation. So I think if we'd had more input from claimants into the system, then there might have been uh, fewer of these um, decisions made.
1: Thank you very much, Fran. I, Alison, I just wanted to we ask you a couple of questions. We haven't really talked about childcare as much. Although it came up in the presentation from the research that Rita made at the beginning that. Um, uh, people find it very hard to make the upfront payments to childcare providers, um, and also that uh, it's incredibly difficult to pro- uh, to plan the childcare for your children if you don't know what um, uh, resources you're going to be given and you don't know how they're identified uh, for childcare yeah. on a month-to-month basis. Um, and I'm and I'm wondering whether this research and, and also what's happening in the crisis at the moment with lots of vulnerability for childcare providers, saying they're can't survive the period at the moment without some, uh, you know, the, the fee income. Whether the, the argument is made that actually childcare costs will be better being taken out of uh, universal credit or being paid through those kind of, if you like, demand side and rather like the payments for uh, places for three and four year olds paid directly to the supplier, to the, to the schools, the nurseries, the childcare providers. Um, I mean is that is it is that something that you think from your work you would support?
0: Oh definitely yes um, I, I, you know I think um, it's kind of the, the missing piece of the jigsaw is, is getting our, a proper universal childcare system um, running and I I definitely think it would be better to, for it to have supply-side funding um, and that's not just for nurseries but also for extended schools because um, The big gaps in childcare these days are in childcare for older children, for children with disabilities, for parents working atypical hours. And those would be better dealt with through, again, uh, a supply side funded system of um, extended school, sort of before and after school and throughout the school holidays. It would also incidentally help you to address the food issue uh, because it could just be available for all kids without having to have these stigmatising child feeding programmes that we're developing at the moment. Um, so yes, yeah, supply side is definitely the way ahead and of course steps along the way um, could include while you're expanding that then obviously universal credit entitlements will eventually shrink. At the moment, making the monthly reporting is a real headache. Um, There's there's never been a successful way of providing upfront payments. Um, There used to be advisory discussionary fund and now there's the flexible fund. These are so poorly known by parents and not advertised that people don't know to ask um, in order to get help with that kind of thing. So people start out uh, in debt, then they have to claim in arrears through universal credits, and so that leaves them often in debt with their childcare providers, which is no way to manage a relationship with your child's You know, carer, educator, whatever you want to call them.
1: So yeah, I think more needs to be done. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Alison. Well, we've. uh, I think we've come to the end of the questions we 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 have, unless anybody um, wants to uh, put one in now whilst I'm speaking. Um, But thank you to those of you who have uh, uh, asked those questions before in the in in the previous session. Um, uh, I might just ask, if I may, our, our. team to say anything more uh, uh, at the end if there's anything that we haven't covered in this Q&A that you wanted particularly to uh, reflect upon. Um, I, I know that there are more papers coming in. We've got, I, I mentioned at the beginning that the report is available on the IPR website and you're going into the uh, further research but there will be more papers being published. Um, I know my colleague Marshall Wood who Jane mentioned earlier who's on the calls, done work in particular on the childcare issue um, so it may be worth just signposting people to any further developments further resources that will come from the research perhaps I can ask you to do that uh, by way of closing the um, debate today um, shall I start?
2: Yes. So the report is um, published, and we encourage everyone to read it, of course. Um, and we are currently working on um, the um, plan for the fieldwork for the phase two. So we're developing that side of things. We, we obviously had a lot of presentations, conference papers, and all sorts of things planned, um, most of which have been postponed or not happening. Um, so we're looking to put forward some more events, a bit more targeted events, um, and more publications so more blog, blogs and articles as well um, and more, a, a wider range of publications because we want to reach out as far as possible um, and we're very interested to continue to talk to um, third sector and policy makers about the implications of the research.
1: Good okay well if, um, if that's everything from everybody uh, a big thank you to Alison first of all for coming on to the uh, event today and, and providing your comments and um, uh, we're very grateful to you, Alison. It's really important to have your perspectives. And, you know, we know this is a very busy time um, <laughs> for you, uh, although uh, you, you mentioned there are lots of issues that need to be addressed. You've now got Marcus Rashford on your side, which is a rather yeah. useful <laughs> useful thing to have in, um, in politics. Uh, some of the talent that he's got is not confined to the football pitch. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, thank you very much, Alison. Uh, that's great. And thank you to Jane and to Fran and to... Rita, for your presentations for, and for answering the questions so fully. Um, and thank you to everybody who has come on this call and has engaged with this research. Um, as Jane mentioned, you know, we encourage you to go onto our website, to read our blogs, uh, to look at the work as we, as we continue with it, to stay in touch with us, um, because there will be more to come uh, on this incredibly important area. And if policy remains fluid because of this crisis, then we will be seeking to influence it as we've done today to make the kind of improvements that we've discussed that are necessary. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for coming on the call today. Um, And as I say, um, do keep in touch with our work in the future. Thank you.